Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14 on page 989. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The word of the Lord. All right, good morning, guys. Ah, that was weak. Good morning, guys. All right. Uh, Welcome. We are starting a new sermon series this morning called Advent. Uh, It's appropriately themed. Um, The four weeks leading up to Christmas is uh, known as the Advent season. Before we dig in, though, I want to remind you of a few key things. Last week, we finished up our, uh, our series, our preaching series that was really geared around giving. And, and what we were doing is talking about our capital campaign, the opportunities, the challenges in front of us. And I was calling us as a people to, um, to engage that challenge. And, and um, last week, when we collected our pledge cards, that was one of our lowest weeks of attendance, um, which isn't surprising. Strategically, I planned that very, very well because it was right before Thanksgiving. And of course, everybody's traveling. And so... I know that there were many folks that um, wanted to be engaged, but were not here at that point. So I'm going to encourage you to um, fill out those pledge cards and to be part of that initial uh, effort. There are, there are um, capital campaign booklets at the end of the rows underneath the seats. If you need one, you can grab one. Um, there's a pledge card at the back. There are response boxes by the doors. And if you want to, you can fill out that pledge card and drop it in that box on your way out. You can also visit our website um, trailheadonline.org. There's a banner right on there for, for the, uh, the, the Rooted and Growing campaign, which is our capital campaign. Uh, and if you click on that, you, it'll take you to our, our capital campaign website where you can actually um, fill out an online form for our, um, to, to join our capital campaign. Uh, we're going to wait until next week to announce the, the total that, um, that we've had pledged through this effort, um, because we want to make sure that everybody who wants to have an opportunity um, really has an opportunity to be part of that initial announcement so that we get to share that win together, honestly. Um, God's doing incredibly cool things in and through our church, and it is a privilege to partner with you in it. And so I encourage you to, um, to jump in and be part of that effort. The second thing I want to remind you of is, is Affordable Christmas is um, next week. So if you're a last-minute person, last-minute just passed, okay? So you should start feeling the urgency about now. Um, it's time to be involved. This is, a, this is an all-hands-on-deck kind of activity. It's a huge event. We're going to make a, a big impact in the lives of some folks that, that um, uh, you know, are, are, are not able to provide Christmas. Um, and so um, we want you to join us in that. We really do need everybody to be involved. And so if you haven't purchased a gift or you haven't been involved yet, we have two Christmas trees in the lobby. One's for the girls, one's for the boys. There are ornaments on there. Each one of those ornaments represents a gift of a different value. We would love it if you would grab an ornament or two or three, um, do some shopping and get those gifts in here this week, okay? And, and um, you, can, you can talk to the people at Connection Point to figure out how to do that. We would also love to have your, um, your, your effort on the Saturday, the event itself. We need everybody to be involved. We, have, we need assistant shoppers. We need people to stack tables. We need people to be with the kids. We need people, I mean, there's just so many different moving parts to this thing. We need everybody to be involved. And here's my promise to you is you're going to get more out of it than you put into it. It'll be for your benefit, okay? When we serve, when we sacrifice to, to, to move out in the love of the gospel to other people, 
through that process, we are blessed, okay? So join us in this, okay? Get involved. I know it's inconvenient. I know it's going to cost. I know it's going to be an effort. Um, but I'm telling you, it's, it's going to be worth the effort to jump in and, and join with us. So you can visit the affordable Christmas table in the lobby. Um, you can also grab the, the ornaments off those trees, but, but please do get involved. All right, so this week we're beginning a new sermon series um, centered around Advent. Now, Advent is traditionally uh, the title used for the four weeks leading up to Christmas. It's the time between Thanksgiving and Christmas where the church is called upon, really, to prepare uh, our hearts um, for Christmas, for celebrating the birth of Christ. And, uh, and that's what I want to do over this next four weeks, honestly, is really just kind of sit in, in some truths to marinate us, to prepare our hearts. I don't know about you, but I'm feeling kind of frayed right now. I mean, it's been a crazy season, you know? I mean, you're just, it's family and it's running and it's eating and recovering from eating and more family, which is exhausting sometimes, and a lot of talking and and you're getting blitzed by advertisements and it's all the urgency of the season and that's not going to stop between now and Christmas, right? Our, in our culture, this is the ramp-up time, right? This is when the urgency increases. And the, What I want to do is, is give us an opportunity as, as followers of Christ, the people of God, to just slow down, honestly, and sit in some truths that I think are going to soften our hearts and prepare our hearts to really enter into the Christmas season in a way that will free us to true freedom and joy, love, and, and, and worship, um, and, and to do that, we're going to have to talk about the real meaning of, of Christmas. Um, if you ask around, you're going to get a lot of different answers, right? If you ask people in our culture, what is the meaning of Christmas? You're, you're going to get a lot of different answers that are all rooted in some ways in the truth, but all um, by themselves insufficient, right? Some people are going to say Christmas is all about family, right? It's our opportunity in this culture to, to just celebrate family and, and celebrate the people we love and be celebrated by them. Some people are going to say that, that Christmas is really about making the world a better place. It's about following Jesus. And in the same way he made the world a better place, we're, we're supposed to do that. So events like Affordable Christmas, that, that's what Christmas is all about. It's, it's us reaching out in love to, to better other people's lives, to do good works and, and to serve others, right? Some people are going to say that, that Christmas is, is all about giving, right? God gave and so we give. And, and so Christmas is really just about us um, enjoying the blessing of giving. And, and if some of us are more honest, we're really going to say that Christmas is all about getting. Um, because while we enjoy giving, we have our little wish lists, don't we? We have the things we want to get. We have, even if it's not written down, it's probably in the back of your mind, the things that you're hoping people will know you really want, right? Some people get super spiritual around this time of year, and they're like, no, 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 Christmas is all about Christ, right? And they kind of go on a little warfare about, don't take Christ out of Christmas, right? Christ has got to stay in Christmas. And, and so it, they end up kind of turning it into an opportunity for some more cultural warfare. Who doesn't need more of that, right? Like, like those are the bad guys, those people who take Christ out of Christmas, we're the good guys. And kind of what they mean by that a lot of times is you need to go to church, and you need to, you need to kind of get your life together, and, and um, you, know, you need to work hard at, at being a follower of Christ. None of these are bad things. Honestly, none of these are bad things. Giving, getting, serving others, um, being focused on Christ and Christmas, they're all good things. What I want to do, though, is I want to go a little bit deeper than just saying Christmas is all about Christ. I want to go a little bit deeper and talk about how Christmas really plays into our understanding of what makes life worthwhile. Right? We're going to dig into a little bit of theology, 
Um, and, and, and to do that, we're going to be sitting in these verses, these three verses, for the next four weeks. And some of you are like, dude, really? Four weeks and three verses? Yeah, that, that's going to happen. Okay, sometimes when you come to the Word of God, it, it's totally cool to be like in an airplane flying over the Rockies, right? It takes you all of 10 minutes to cover the whole thing, right? So you survey the entire Old Testament in 10 minutes. That's totally cool sometimes. Sometimes it's more like a drive through the Rockies where it takes you, you know, maybe a couple days with a little bit of sightseeing. Other times it's more like camping, right? Like when you hit Ure up in the heart of the Rockies and you're like, now nah, I'm going to spend an entire week right here in this one little town because it's that beautiful. There are that many things to discover here. We're going to sit for the next four weeks in these three verses because they are packed with meaning. There's a lot for us to unpack. So this is my encouragement to you. If you're a member, a regular attender of Trailhead, I'm going to encourage you to actually memorize these three verses over the next four weeks. I'm going to encourage you to take a three by five card, write these verses down, review them daily. First of all, you'll get more out of the sermon series, I guarantee it. Because as we unpack these verses, it's not just going to be about you hearing things about them. It's going to be God kind of working those things into you. Really will be for your benefit to memorize these things. Um, it'll also help you, I think, really achieve our goal, which is kind of letting these truths work their way into our souls as we move through this season of chaos. It'll be good for you, okay? So I encourage you, spend some time every day just sitting in these verses. Um, they're rich, and um, uh, the things that we discover in them are going to, to really be beneficial to us as we explore really the true meaning behind Advent. Um, today, as we, as we look at this, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the story of Advent, the big story of Advent, and how Advent fits into the big story of what God is doing. So, so we're going to be talking about the true story of Advent, which is the same thing as saying we're talking about the true story of the world, that there is, in fact, a story that God is telling, and, and we're going to be looking at this, this true story of the world, which we call the gospel. The word gospel simply means the good news, that there is a God who is on mission uh, to ultimately establish His glory and give us His good, right? And so we're going to be looking at that story today. And the focus for today is this, that the God, Jesus, broke into our world so that true hope could break into our hearts. That the, the, the coming of Christ is um, irreversibly linked with the coming of hope, that there is in the advent of Christ the advent of hope. And, and we're going to talk about why that's so important, okay? So we're going to, we're going to be taking a look at the big story of the Bible. So we're going to be doing a little bit of survey and then coming to our passage um, a little bit toward the end. So that's kind of where we're going. Um, I want to remind you of the big story of the Bible, which means we need to start at the beginning, okay? And so I'm actually going to ask you to turn there. Keep your finger in Titus, but go ahead and flip over to Genesis 1. It's really easy to find. It's all the way to the left, okay? You just keep flipping. You'll eventually get there. We're talking page 1, okay? Um, so go all the way back to Genesis 1. These are incredibly important um, chapters for our understanding of who we are and, and who God is and what He's doing. I want to focus, first of all, on uh, Genesis 1, 31. Oh, I guess a word about that silly arrow. You guys, what, what is that? Um, as I go through this, what I'm going to be talking, describing is, is um, I picked up a really helpful tool um, from a good friend. Uh, what, what they've done is we talk about the story of the Bible, the story arc of the Bible, that it's one big story right? An incredible book, 66 books over 40 different authors written over 2,000 years, but it tells a single story. And the reality is that story can be broken down into six acts, okay? And so those acts are going to be represented as I go through them uh, on the screen by different symbols. And the whole point behind that is to help make it memorable to you, 
right? So that these things are um, uh, not just abstract ideas, but to kind of nail it down. So the first act of our story really is God coming down in creation, that God created. That's what we read about in, in Genesis 1 and 2, right? Genesis 1 and 2 is God essentially just coming down and through a sheer act of creative power, he creates the world, everything in it. And on day six, he actually creates mankind, Adam and Eve, in his own image, as his image bearers, to be stewards of the entire created order. So he entrusts the world to them. He basically says to them, you're going to be my stewards over all of this. And at the end of chapter 1, verse 31, it says this, and God saw everything he had made and behold... It was very good. And there was evening and there was morning on the sixth day. This is a, a profound um, theological statement of truth. Um, when you get to, to um, you know, this, these verses, at the end of, end of each day, God creates. And then he says at the end of each day, when you look through Genesis 1, he says, it is good. You know, so I created all this, it's good. I created all this, it's good. He gets to the end of day six, which is the end of the created order. He's just created mankind. And he says, it's good. Behold, step back, pause for a minute. Look at this. It is very good. This is a profound theological statement. What he's saying is not only is this good work, like I'm a master craftsman and man, that's good work. What he's saying is that there's a goodness inherent to the created order because that created order is in line with the character of the creator. There's a glory in creation that is uh, a representation of the creator, right? Like the same way an artist, um, a good artist puts something of themselves in their art. And, and you, when you come to a masterpiece, you can see not just the art itself, but something of the creator of that art in it. All of creation reflected the glory and the balance and the harmony of God. And that's what we call, theologians call, the shalom of God. That, that, that God, that the created order at this stage of the game was characterized by shalom. Shalom is a Hebrew word that means peace. But when, but when we're talking about shalom, we're talking about much more than what we mean by peace. When we talk about peace, we're talking about a lack of conflict. When we say things are at peace, we mean the kids are quietly watching videos and not killing each other. When we talk about peace, we're, we mean that, that we're all sharing a meal and nobody's like dying, right? I mean, this is, um, it means a lack of conflict. But when, when the Bible talks about peace or shalom specifically, we're talking about something much more than peace. It is peace, a lack of conflict, but it's more than that. It's, it's a harmony. It's a balance. It's a wholeness. There's a, there is a, to put it this way, a glorious hum to the created order. Everything is in its place operating as it should. Everything is in balance. So, so in Genesis 1 and 2, what we see is God basically saying there is a glorious hum to the symphony of the universe. And mankind is part of that because mankind at that stage was creating the image of God and so every day when they got up, man, they had work to do and they had um, living to do and marriage to do, and, but there was a glorious balance in it all. So it was so much more than just a lack of conflict. It was a, it was a healthfulness. It was, it, was, it was something incredibly beautiful. Now, this is the thing. God created mankind to live in that shalom. We were created for it, right? And, and, and so that shalom was the balancing factor of mankind's desire, right? Adam and Eve weren't like these desireless, passionless creatures running around. They had passion. 
They had desires, right? I mean, that's kind of implied when God says, go populate the earth, right? I mean, there are passions. There are desires. They were just holy and balanced and healthy and good because they were in line with everything that God had created. There was a balance to it. That part of the story doesn't last very long. That's Genesis 1 and 2. The problem is Genesis 3 comes along. And in Genesis chapter 3, as symbolized by the X in my diagram, we see a breaking of shalom, where mankind rebels against God. And you guys know the story. I'm not going to belabor the details, but, but essentially Adam and Eve look at God and say to God, you're no longer going to be the center of the story. We are. We're going to be equal to God, which basically means we're now not going to live for your kingdom. We're going to build our own. We're not going to live for your glory. We're going to live for our own. We're no longer going to live under your authority. We're going to live under our own. And in so doing, what they were essentially saying is that you're no longer God. We are equal to you. It is our glory that is glorious, our kingdom that is glorious, our story that is glorious. You will not tell a better story for our lives than we would tell for ourselves. So we reject you for ourselves. That was the great rebellion of Genesis chapter 3. Flip right over there. That's page, uh, page 3. When you read through Genesis 3, it's like an unfolding tragedy. This is one of the most theologically significant chapters in the Bible because what it does is it really identifies and describes the reality of what it means to be human today. As we unpack this, what I want you to see is we're not just talking about ancient history. We're not just talking about abstract theology. We're talking about us, okay? So take a look at verse 7 as we see uh, mankind rebelling against God, essentially. Verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Okay, the issue here is not nakedness, right? This is not them suddenly realizing, oh, wow, I'm sexual and that is somehow shameful, They were already sexual. (laughs) I was already going on, okay? There was nothing shameful about that. In fact, it's not even implying there's anything shameful about the human body. That's not the point. The point is, is for the first time, they were waking up to the reality that they had something to be shameful about. They introduced, for the first time, into the created order, the experience of guilt. They introduced the experience of shame. They introduced the internal dysfunction. Every morning when they woke up before Genesis chapter 3, everything was in line. There was a glorious hum. Every day they woke up after Genesis chapter 3, they had that little voice in the back of their head that said to them, you don't measure up. You have something to hide. You're not smart enough. You're not pretty enough. You're not strong enough. You're not intelligent enough. You're not powerful enough. You suck. It was that internal critical voice that basically condemned them, tore them down, and ultimately would would remind them that they had something to hide. So we see the breaking of shalom between man and himself. There's a loss of the peace of God, the balance of God. That spills over, verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. So we see that that in the beginning, (laughs) kind of an astounding thing, the creator of all things, the the omnipotent, eternal uh, creator God came and hung out with his creation. 
What does that tell us? It tells us that God created mankind for relationship, right? This, this incredible God basically said, I want to know you and I want you to know me. I want to walk in a loving relationship with you. So he shows up in the cool of the evening to walk with him, already knowing what's happened, and they hide themselves from God. So not only are they broken in their relationship with themselves, they're now broken in their relationship with God. See, the glory of God used to be an invitation to intimacy. The glory of God is now threatening and alienating to them. They now sense that there's something between them and God. There is something that makes them unworthy of the presence of God, something that calls them to hide from God. And instead of running to God as a good father who loves them, they now hide from God as a threatening judge who might destroy them. See, that's the introduction of sin. What they've done in their rebellion against God is they have broken their relationship, the shalom, the peace they had with God. They've made themselves less than what they were. They, in fact, have made themselves worthy of judgment. And in so doing, in breaking that shalom with God, they have brought themselves under the condemnation of God. Not because God is unloving, but because God by His very nature must judge and destroy all that is unholy. He's like a pure fire and sin is like kindling in His presence. And they sense that, that there is in fact something now dangerous about the presence of God that never existed before. God then meets with them and explains to them a little bit further what the effects are of their rebellion. And He looks at the woman and He says to her in verse 15, I will put enmity between you um, and uh, jump 16. I did that last service too. Jump to 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. I don't want to get into all the details, but here's, here's the essence of what he's saying. These things that were once meant to be peaceful and marked by harmony, specifically community and the tightest form of community, family, are now going to be marked by pain. Raising children wasn't supposed to be painful, right? It wasn't supposed to be a microscopic warfare, right? Being married to somebody wasn't supposed to be painful. It wasn't supposed to be competition. But what ended up happening, and what he's saying to Eve is this, is that you've broken shalom, and as a result, what used to be community is now competition. You will now measure yourself by everyone around you. You'll decide whether you're beautiful by how beautiful others are, and that will, that will determine whether you feel superior to them or inferior to them. You'll now measure your success, your power, your comfort, everything. People now become competitors instead of community. And when competition is introduced into human relationships, there is no longer shalom, there is only conflict. And we see that most clearly in the tightest form of community, the home. We are competing for resources. We are competing for time. We're competing for attention. We're competing for interest. Is that not true? It's okay. It is true. (laughs) You're like, yeah, you described my home, man. Yeah, mine too, okay? This is reality, right? We come to resent the very people we love. We come to be in competition for them instead of in self-sacrificial loving relationship with them. We have to fight for community. Because conflict is so natural, isn't it? He looks at Adam in uh, verse 17, and he explains to him, look, another ramification of your rebellion. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. 
In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. He looks at Adam and says to him, Your relationship with the created order, you're the steward of all of creation. And whereas creation used to yield willingly to your hand, there was a glorious hum between the farmer and the farm, the, the worker and the land, man and creation. There is now going to be conflict. It's still going to yield its fruit to you, but it's going to do so reluctantly. It's going to rise up against you and it's going to fight you. The earth will now no longer reside peacefully under your stewardship. You will have to fight to bring it under submission. Do you see, see what we're describing here? The loss of shalom in every relationship, our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with God, our relationship with others, our relationship with the created order. Genesis chapter 3 is a profound look at what it means to be human, right? Some of you experienced Genesis chapter 3 on the, church here, on the way to church here today, right? <laughs> Your car was a microcosm of warfare and conflict. Some of you are still, you're still not quite able to focus on what I'm saying because you're still reeling from the arguments you had, right? It's okay, part of it. See, Genesis chapter 3 is an incredibly insightful look into what it means to be human. Genesis chapter 3 explains to us why there's suffering in the world. You ever dealt with that question? Why, if God is loving, is there so much suffering in the world? Because of Genesis chapter 3. There's the loss of shalom. It's a clear answer, not a simple answer, because there's never a simple answer when you're the one suffering. But it is a a theological framework that helps us understand why there is brokenness and suffering in the world. It's because things are not the way they were supposed to be. There has been a breaking of shalom. And in the breaking of that shalom, all we've done is brought disharmony, competition, hurt into life. So we end up hiding from ourselves, hiding from God, hiding from one another, fighting with a created order that used to yield yield joyfully to our hand, but now rises up against us, producing thorns and thistles. Now, I want to pause there for a moment. I want to think about what happened to hope in Genesis 3. Hope is, uh, is pretty important, right? I mean, hope is the expectation of future good, right? When you're hoping for something, what you're doing is, is you're looking for something in the future that is going to be good. So it is an eager anticipation for the fulfillment of a desire, right? How important is hope to your day? How important is hope to your life? It's pretty important. In fact, I'm going to throw it out there. It's essential. We are always hoping because we were designed for hope. You know why? Because we were designed for shalom. We were designed to every day feast on the peace, the balance, the harmony that came from being created in the image of God and to enjoy the good things God has given us, relationships, food, work, um, leisure, all of these things in the glorious hum of the shalom of God. They were meant to be part of the feast So every day we were designed to wake up with an eager anticipation of the good that would be unleashed in our lives 
as a result of our relationship with God. The problem is Genesis 3 tells us that there was something broken. And we can no longer, on our own, hope for the shalom of God. But that doesn't turn our hopers off, right? That hoper is still hoping. So all it does is shift. It shifts from the shalom of God to something that is made in the image of the shalom of God. We turn from God to the thing that is the image of God and look to that image to be God for us. We look to our work or to our family or to our relationship or our success, to some form of leisure, some form of entertainment, some form of pleasure. And we look to it and we say to it, you will fulfill me. You will meet my need, my deepest need. And so we put our anticipation and our hope toward it. We are continually hoping. Bottom line is we can't live without hope. We cannot live without hope. It's been proven. I mean, there have been studies done on, on POW camps. I find these studies fascinating. And the, and, and, and the recent ones I've read, man, there are ancient ones, but more recently, some of the most brutal uh, POW camps were found in Vietnam during the Vietnamese War and, and, and in Japan during World War II. And those camps were brutal, horrible places to be. But the worst part of those camps weren't the physical abuse. There was plenty of that. But there was plenty of that, honestly, in most POW camps. What made those camps so insidious was that they had determined that their primary goal was to rob their captives of all hope. So they would not only physically abuse them, they would systematically lie to them about the status of the war about the conditions of their home front. If they found out things about their family, they would lie to them and use that against them so that the prisoner felt more and more alone and like they had less and less to hope for. And there are stories of men simply curling up and dying, not because of the physical abuse, but because they had no more will to live. We cannot live without hope. We were designed for it. We were wired for it. And despair is death. So we can't turn our hopers off. So the end result is that we shift our hoping into things that ultimately aren't worthy of our hope. And and what we're doing when we do that is is honestly, we're trying to get back to the shalom of God. I I would say to you that pretty much all human behavior can be explained by that desire to get back to the shalom of God. Whether you're pursuing someone to love, you're dating somebody, you're marrying somebody, you're having a child, you're working hard at your job, you're, you're working um, to, you want to get a new you, Xbox, you, um, or you're abusing drugs, or you're looking at pornography, or you're, or you're doing things that are unspeakably wicked. Why are you doing those things? I'm going to propose to you that it's because in some way you are in fact pursuing what you can't have. You're pursuing the shalom of God in the things that can't give you the shalom of God. And I think the more twisted and more perverted and and more destructive behaviors often come out when people are starting to embrace the despair and they're realizing that life cannot give them what they were wired to get. And instead of going out of the story quietly, they'd rather burn it down on their way out. We were wired for the shalom of God. And since we can't have it, we look for it in other things. 
And here's the thing, there's no secret here. I'm not telling you anything we don't already know. (laughs) Uh, Mankind's known this forever. This essential truth that we were wired to desire something that we cannot find the fulfillment for in this lifetime. There is something we are missing, something we want that we simply do not have. But that doesn't stop us from chasing it. And in the Western world, that often means continuing to chase fame, money, um, pleasure, gratification. Even though we know those things, when we get them, will simply ultimately disappoint us. There's a poem that I got to teach um, when I was a high school English teacher. Um, I'm going to read. We're going to put it up there. I'm going to read it to you. This is Richard Corey by Edwin Arlington Robinson. Just read along as I read this to you. Whenever Richard Corey went downtown, people on the pavement looked at him. He was a gentleman from soul to crown, clean, favored, and imperially slim. He was always quietly arrayed. And he was always human when he talked. But still he fluttered pulses when he said good morning. And he glittered when he walked. He was rich, yes, richer than a king and admirably schooled in every grace. In fine, we thought that he was everything to make us wish that we were in his place. So on we worked and waited for the light and went without meat and cursed the bread. And Richard Corey, one calm summer night, went home and put a bullet through his head. Cheerful, <laughs> isn't it? So what I do is I would teach this to the kids, and I'd give them a bunch of fun worksheets, and we'd do, you know, like, we'd have fun with it, right? Like, let's find out, why do you think he committed suicide? And what do you think that tells us? And I'm just going to cut to the chase with you guys. I mean, the bottom line is, isn't this not the story of our own culture and often of our own hearts? We envy people because we think they have what we deeply need, when in reality, they have it and they're deeply disappointed. There are people in this room that if I were to open up your heart and look, your deepest desire, honestly, is to be famous. And yet, are there not example after example, example of people that have gotten the very thing you're craving to have? And what did it do for them? Right? Do we have a lot of great success stories of people finding fame and then ultimately being so full and so successful and so happy that they just went off into the sunset and lived happy lives? Right? What we find is that when people get the thing they most deeply desire, that's the time they most likely self-destruct. You know why? Because they realize it doesn't give them what they were hoping it would give. They are most deeply disappointed. They are the ones that move most deeply into despair because they have nothing more to hope for. They've gained the very thing they thought they needed. There was no, there's nowhere else to go. So deeply disappointed, they become self-destructive. This is the irony of life. We all know this. We all put hope in what will disappoint, but we do it anyway, and we do it continuously because we can't help but hope. We can't, not and live. So we buy the new gadget, and we look for the new relationship, and we troll Netflix looking for the new TV series, and we're continually looking, continually surveying, continually fighting for fame or success or comfort, knowing all the while that the best we're doing is delaying disappointment. And if the story ended at Genesis chapter 3, that would be the end of our story too. We would all be left with a hell of despair with no reason, built with this need to hope, but no reason to hope. 
a need for something that we could never have fulfilled. But that is not the end of the story because God did not leave us without hope. He did not leave us in the despair of our rebellion. Even as he was explaining the consequences of the great rebellion, he gave a promise. I want to look at that promise. It's in Genesis 3.15, right in the middle of him actually speaking to the serpent, which is funny, but I'm not going to unpack that right now. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field, and your belly you shall go, of dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He's no longer talking to the snake, you guys. This is not about the snake. And he shall bruise your head. He. Who's he? Well, it has to be that offspring. I'll put enmity between you and her offspring. And he, in other words, a son of the woman. There's going to come a human, a son of the woman, and he's going to bruise your head. In other words, he's going to crush what you think you've just accomplished. You think you're robbing me of my glory. You think you are stealing my glory from me by leading these people into rebellion against me. And I'm telling you, I'm going to crush your head or He is, this Savior, this Deliverer, this One, this Seed of the Woman, this Son, will crush your head even as you bruise His heel. Theologians call this the Proto-Angelion, the first preaching of the gospel. This is God right in the midst of Him explaining, right in Genesis 3, He's explaining the consequences of mankind's rebellion against Him. He's making a promise that those consequences will be overturned, that this will not be the end of the story, that he will send a hero. There will be a Savior. And that starts a season of promise. As we go from Genesis 3 through the Old Testament, what we see is that there's a series of God reiterating his promise over and over and over, in fact, narrowing that promise. And on our chart, that's represented by a longer arrow, a season of promise where God doesn't walk away from his promise, but continually reiterates it and, in fact, narrows it. It's not just going to be a seed of the woman, a son of the woman. It's going to be a son of Noah. And in the same way Noah took uh, his family through the flood and the ark bore the judgment, but, but he brought people through to safety on their side, this son will take his people through judgment safely to the other side. He will be a son of, of Abraham. And in the same way that, that the world was blessed Through Abraham, this son will become a blessing to all the peoples of the earth, and and he will be a son of David. In the same way David sat on a throne, this son will sit on an eternal throne of authority. So we see a narrowing of the promise as you go through the Old Testament stories. And what you see in those stories are people responding to the promise. They're living in the broken world, the chaos of the loss of Shalom, and the defining difference between all the people in these stories is whether or not they believe the promise. God basically is calling them to faith. I'm giving you a promise. I'm inviting you to trust me again. You rejected trust in me in Genesis 3. That was the beginning of the the human tragedy. I'm inviting you to reverse that tragedy by trusting instead of yourself in my promise, in my character, in my Savior. When you read through the Old Testament, it's just a mess of, of those who trusted and those who rejected trust and the chaos, and, and it reads an awful lot like today. 
And then, of course, after the age of promise comes the promised day in which the Savior is born. And on our chart, that's represented by the cross. The day that God broke into His creation. We find out on that day that the Savior is not just a seed of the woman or of Noah or of Abraham or of David, but a seed of God. That it is God in flesh, the Creator becoming part of His creation, the Holy One, ultimately becoming part of what He created so that He could redeem what He created. He lived the life we should have lived and He died the death we deserved to die and He rose again a new life that we might be forgiven and once again be able to move into a relationship of shalom with God, of peace and balance and harmony with God, not because we've earned it, but because Christ earned it on our behalf. My friends over at, at Crew put together a video that kind of drive this home and it is so I thought about it, I thought, man, they do a way better job than I would do. So I'm just going to show the video that kind of illustrates what we're talking about here. You. Look at your eyes. Look at them. Speckled. Colorful. Each one unique. And I created every one of them. personality. I made you pure, complex, and every day I give you life. I love you, but something happened. You cheated on me. You didn't trust me. off from me, and although you're still alive, you are slowly dying, so you looked for other things, to fill the void, but nothing works.
rose from the dead. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am Jesus. I'm not here to condemn you. I came to bring you back to life. Rely on me. I will forgive you. Follow me. What we see is God becoming man so that God can once again commune with man. The central problem between us and God was our sin, our rebellion. The only one that could solve that problem was God. And He solved it. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. A glorious exchange, our sin for His righteousness, His life for ours. That's the beautiful, heroic story of redemption. And in fact, that's what um, our passage is talking about. So Titus 2, verse 11. This is Christmas. (laughs) Here's Christmas, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That phrase, has appeared, is our English word advent. It has appeared. It is this momentum, momentous thing that has broken in, that has shown itself, right? The tense is aorist, which means it's speaking specifically of that point which when it broke in. It's talking about the birth of Christ. The grace of God has appeared in the person of the Savior, Jesus Grace, that undeserved favor, that unearned merit, that forgiveness that we could never claim on our own has broken into the human story. It has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. In other words, offering to everyone of the human race an opportunity for God to retell their story as a story of redemption and restoration instead of as a tragedy. A story where once again God is at the center instead of us. And that salvation is, is a forgiveness, a removal of our guilt and of our, of our sin, but it is a salvation to something as well. It's not simply the, re- the removal of what is bad, but the restoration of what is good. It is salvation or deliverance to shalom. To once again living at peace with God in harmony with God, at one with God. Not, not because you've earned it, not because you, you didn't sin last night or last week or you sinned less this week than you did the week before. It has nothing to do with how you've earned it. It has to do everything with how He has earned it on your behalf. You see, that's the promise. The same promises of Genesis 3.15. The same promise we see reiterated in the New Testament. The living Dying and resurrection of Christ is the reiteration of that promise that God will crush the head of what destroys us, even though it bruised his heel, that we might be delivered. As followers of Christ, grace has appeared and it has brought you salvation and deliverance back into the shalom of God. And that's why life is so easy, right? As followers of Christ, 
Are you not living in the full outpouring of the shalom of God? Are you not perfectly at peace with God, perfectly content with the created order, perfectly at peace in your homes? No. Why not? I'm being sarcastic. I know we're not, right? Come on. That doesn't describe us. Honestly, when you become a follower of Christ, sometimes it gets worse, doesn't it? It's like when you go to the doctor and the doctor says you have cancer. And you finally admit it to yourself and you allow him to do scans and you realize that the cancer is way worse than you thought it was. Or when he finally opens up the wound and the infection is way deeper than you thought it was. Things aren't getting worse. You're just starting to see how bad they actually were. When you become a follower of Christ, sometimes things get worse. Or at least they feel like they do. Why does that happen? Why is it such a struggle? Why is it so hard if God sent his son to die and rise again that we might be delivered back into the shalom of God? Why are we not walking in the full outpouring of that peace? Well, we're not because we're living in the tension. The tension between the two advents. When Christ came, that was the first. But the first is only a pointer to the second. Take a look at verse 13. This advent, this appearing of the grace of God that brings salvation for all people, what does it do? It produces in us, verse 13, a waiting. That that word means an eager anticipation, a yearning for the blessed hope and the appearing. That's the same word, the second advent of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We live in the tension between what has already been accomplished and what is not yet fulfilled. Our salvation has already been won, but the full experience of it has not yet been fulfilled. We live in the tension between the two advents. The second advent is when when God comes back, when Christ comes back and establishes His kingdom on the earth and restores the world. Right? Revelation 21 describes that event, and, and it's highly symbolic, but what we see is a new Jerusalem descending from heaven back to earth, this idea that God will once again commune with man, where God will once again establish his kingdom, and we will be able to operate as his creatures revolving around the creator in love for one another, in purpose, following a God of creation. Right? It's this beautiful image of, of the human culture restored to the glory of God. But we're not there yet. And so what it's done is it's produced within us an eager anticipation or yearning for its fulfillment. We've tasted it, but we haven't eaten it. It's guaranteed for us because it was guaranteed in the victory and resurrection of Christ. But it's not ours fully yet in experience because it hasn't come yet. We live in the stage of the story between the two advents, which on my, the chart symbolized by the short arrow. We live in the fifth act of a six-act play, and that's the act we're living out. That's the act that we've been called upon to walk in, and and it is a season of tension where the battle is already won, but the field is not yet taken. The solution is already here, but its benefit is not yet fully realized in experience. The shalom of God is ours. But the full shalom of God has not yet been restored to the entire created order. And so we're starting to taste our redemption. We're starting to experientially move into a greater experience of the shalom of God, of being restored by God, of becoming what He's already declared us to be 
but it's often a painful and slow progress, a challenge and a struggle. As we are leaving behind who we were and becoming who we've been declared to be as followers of Christ. You want to know the meaning of Christmas? The meaning of Christmas is to point us to the second advent. That there will be a fulfillment of the promise. To set within us a yearning for that fulfillment. To set within us a yearning for a truer, more, 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 more deep experience of the shalom of God. That we might not become satisfied with our little pursuits and our small glories. But we might be driven by a renewed vision of what we were actually created for. Your appetites are for something so much greater than a thing or an accomplishment or even a human earthly relationship. Not that those things are bad. They're good. But those things were designed to be enveloped in something much greater. In fact, I love the way Paul puts it in in verse 13. We're waiting for a blessed hope. In, In Scripture, anytime something is called blessed, what it means is that it's connected to the source of life. So when you read in the Psalms about the blessed man, it's somebody who is living in the outpouring of the life of God. When we talk about a blessed hope, what we're talking about is a hope that is pregnant with life. In other words, this is the hope that encompasses all other hopes. This is the hope that gives fulfillment to every desire. Not that it removes those desires because God designed us, right? That we see that every day. We get hungry for food. God designed us to have needs and desires that were met in physical, temporal ways. That's part of what it means to be human. But we were never meant to be fully satisfied by those temporal desires. They were meant to point us to a greater fulfillment in Christ. When we look at Christmas, it renews our hope for a true fulfillment. Do you catch what I'm saying? It gives us a vision for life that is so much greater than what we're currently experiencing. And it sets a flame in our hearts of hope, of eager anticipation and yearning for that greater fulfillment. We live in this already not yet tension. But this tension is not the end. It is simply meant to awaken within us a desire. So this shorter arrow, this season in which we live, is a season of celebration because we get to look back at a Savior who died and rose again. We know the victory is ours. It is also a season of effort and labor because we've been entrusted the message of that gospel, that good news, to carry forward into a world that others might come to know Him. It is also a season of change. Because through this season of tension, what God is going to do is he is going to change us into what he's already declared us to be, which means we are going to become more free, more loving, and more joyful, which is the next three sermons. It's all right here in these three verses. We're going to talk about what it means to be truly free, what it means to experience genuine love, and what it is to move more deeply into joy as we move forward. For this week, like I said, my whole goal in the sermon series is to get us to simply marinate in some truth, to sit in it and let it work in our hearts. What are you hoping in? What are you looking to to fulfill you? 
What are you looking to to give you the deep sense of security or purpose or joy that you were wired to need? And how are you as a follower of Christ recognizing that its ultimate fulfillment comes in your relationship with God? That there's a greater hope and a greater fulfillment and a greater purpose for life than these short-sighted pursuits that often fill our time. Let's be people who live in light of the greater story. That's part of the meaning of Christmas. To point us to the fact that this is temporary. And there is something much better coming.